Thank you, Tom. That word Trinity that he was referencing is not a biblical word, but it is a biblical teaching. And we came up with a word to describe the best we could what the Bible teaches about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, yet in three persons. And I, I think a lot of times we as Baptists are so afraid of the charismatics that we have replaced the biblical understanding of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We don't really want the Holy Spirit, we want the Holy Bible, and the Holy Bible is very important, obviously, and vital. The Spirit uses the Scriptures to speak to us. But we can't be so afraid of the Holy Spirit that we're, we're, we disregard who God is. So I think it's good for us to sing that song to the Holy Spirit, who we need today to take the words of His Scripture and apply them to our hearts, apply them to our lives. We need that Holy Spirit to open our spiritual ears. We need that Holy Spirit to open our spiritual eyes through His Word and to transform us. We're in Luke chapter 13. Last week, uh, we were going to cover Luke 13, 1 to 9, and we ran out of time, so we're going to come back and finish that out uh, now this morning. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. I hope last week that we were able to acquire a, a pretty good understanding of the context of this interaction that Jesus has with these Jewish lay people. I hope that we had a good understanding that would allow us to lay a foundation of what this really implied for the Jewish people and how it turned out for the Jewish people and, and how it opens the door for we as Gentiles to experience the grace and mercy of God in a profound way and I hope this morning that we can reopen this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 13 and build on that foundation with some really practical applications for our lives, our individual lives uh, here today. Let's look at the Scriptures again, just brief reminders of what we saw last week as we walked through it in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This is just, you know, the news, the breaking news of the day. You know, Jesus is there and, and these people come up and they want to make sure everybody's heard the scoop. So they make sure that Jesus has heard the scoop. Hey, did you, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans who came to offer sacrifices and Pilate murdered them there at the altar, there in the presence of God, at the altar of God, leaving offerings to God? These folks... Must have been really, really bad Galileans for that to happen to them. Jesus says in verse number 2, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you think these Galileans were some kind of super sinners because the wages of their sin was death? No, the wages of sin is death. It's not a surprise that sinners die. What's a surprise is that sinners are allowed to live, that sinners are given another day to repent. So I'm telling you, who are bringing me this news, and unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. Just to be certain they understand, he gives another illustration from the news. 
In verse number 4, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now notice the theme that Jesus is coming back to as he addresses the Galileans and as he addresses those that the tower fell on. The, the theme he comes back to is repent. You need to repent unless you repent. And then he drives home this warning in a parable. He says, he began telling this parable in verse 6. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. A vineyard is for vines, not fig trees. So we see, we're reminded of the reality that this man intentionally planted a fig tree in the midst of his vineyard. This fig tree was intentionally placed there. It was given special care as part of the vineyard. It had all of the perks. It had all of the benefits of a fig tree. And yet, in the latter part of verse 6, he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. He comes looking for fruit on this fig tree that he specially planted in his vineyard, that he specially cared for over the years, and he finds no fruit. So what does he say in verse number 7? He said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? This tree is unproductive. I've come for three years looking for fruit on this tree. I've found no fruit. Not only is it unproductive, this tree is counterproductive. It's taking up space that can be used to grow something that will bear fruit. So cut the tree down. Now for the first time, we hear from the vineyard keeper in verse number 8. He answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. What kind of fruit is God the planter of the fig tree, looking for on the fig tree. We get the hints from the prior verses that the fruit he's looking for is the fruit of repentance. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. I don't see any fruit on this tree. Cut it down. May the tree perish. John the Baptist in his preaching had warned them that the axe was laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what God is looking for in this parable... What God is looking for is the fruit of repentance in the lives, specifically, as we saw last week, of the Jews. And we saw what this looked like in the life and the history of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. I hope we got an understanding of how that all ties into where we are today. But this morning, what I want us to do is to answer this question, what does this parable mean for us? What does this interaction mean for us today, the church, the true Israel? The true children of Abraham. Believers from among Jews and Gentiles that make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us today in the 21st century? Because the scriptures, though in context, was specifically directed to Jewish people in the streets who come to bring him news. The scripture is for us today as well. It applies to us today as well. And we need to glean from the scriptures. What is it that we need to glean? Here's what we need to glean from this whole parable, from this whole interaction. God our Father is looking for fruit in our lives. 
And He is looking for fruit in our lives, specifically the fruit of repentance. Yes, He loves the fruit of righteousness. Yes, He loves the fruit of souls that have come to faith. Yes, He loves the fruit of our lips as we praise Him. Yes, He loves the fruit of the Spirit, that that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our lives. But here specifically, in this parable, in this interaction, He's looking for a fruit that we don't hear much about. I'm sure you've heard about the fruit of the Spirit, have you not? If If you've heard about the fruit of the Spirit, raise your hand. Okay, you see those hands. That sounded like an evangelist at the end of a service, didn't it? You see those hands. If you've heard of the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of your lips, raise your hand. If you've heard of the fruit of seeing someone come to faith in Jesus, raise your hand. But how many of you have heard of the fruit of repentance? But it is a fruit. And it is one that God is looking for in our lives. And listen, this should not be news to us. This should not be news to us. Repentance is... It's not a one-time thing. We, we act like that if we have come to faith in Jesus, well, I've repented, I've trusted Jesus, and now let me move on to bigger and better things like eschatology and figure out when Jesus is coming back and how Jesus is coming back and, and how all that looks. I'm going to study that. I'm going to invest my life in that. I've repented a long time ago. I put my faith in Jesus a long time ago. I'm moving on to bigger and better things. Repentance is not that way. The Christian life is not that way. Repentance is a pattern in the life of the Christian. Repentance is a core characteristic of the Christian. And this shouldn't be news to us. Listen, in 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle in Wittenberg to spark the Protestant Reformation... To get us out of the, of the deceitfulness and the false teaching of Catholicism. To bring us out of that into the Protestant faith. When he nailed those theses on the door, the very first one. Number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent. He willed the entire life of believers... To be one of repentance. This is the first thesis in Martin Luther's 95 that he nailed to the door. The reality that the Christian life is to be a life of repentance. It's to be a life that is characterized by repentance. So that when God comes by looking for fruit on the tree of the Christian life, that fruit of repentance ought to be there. So the question this morning is not, should we be characterized by repentance? The question is, What is true repentance? And how does it look? And why do we need to answer that question? Because I think many of us may think confession equals repentance. I confess my sin, 1 John 1, 9, right? If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I just tell God my sin, I confess my sin, and that equals repentance. And that is not the case. Did you know you can confess your sin... You can admit your sin without repenting of your sin. So let's let's define repentance this morning. Let's get an understanding of what true biblical repentance is this morning so that we can make sure we have repented, that we are repenting, and that if God were to pass by us, He would see the fruit of repentance 
in our lives. Confession is not repentance. It's a part of repentance, but it's not repentance. And it's most basic definition. If we just were to simplify this for kindergartners, for kids here today, to make sure you kids understand repentance, this is the basic definition. It's a 180-degree U-turn. So you take a U-turn. You know how your dad, when he's driving and the light says, no U-turn here, but he wants to get the Krispy Kreme. He just takes it anyway. He takes the risk. And he just does a complete U-turn. Your mom's going, the sign says no, but he does it anyway. It's a U-turn. You understand now? Yes, you do, right? So we're heading this way in our lives. Our affections are pointed this way. Our attitudes are pointed this way. Our actions are pointed this way. The Bible says we're caught up in the course of this world, led on by the prince of the power of the air, and we're oblivious to it, but we're going the way of the world. We're going the way everybody else is going around us. We dress the way everybody else dresses around us. We listen to the music that people listen to around us. We watch the things that people around us watch. We do the things that people around us do. We're just caught up in our culture, and we may go to church on Sunday. You know, we may, we may say the right words, but we're heading this way. Repentance is we're heading this way, and we do an about face. We do a 180. We do a U-turn. We turn around, and we head the opposite direction towards Christ. Does that make sense? Webster, in his dictionary from 1828, which has no superior, by the way, if you're looking for the best English dictionary on the planet, Webster's 1828 is that. He quotes Johnson as saying this, repentance is the relinquishment of of any practice. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Christianity just being one big loosening of the grip. It's constantly loosening the grip on everything. Repentance is a relinquishment, a releasing of the grip of any practice from conviction that it has offended God. Repentance is the relinquishment of any practice from conviction that it has offended God. So I want us to think about repentance this morning together. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote that repentance is a spiritual medicine and it's made up of six ingredients. And I took his six ingredients and we're going to flesh them out this morning as we get an understanding of what repentance is. First of all, sight of sin. It begins with sight of sin. It begins with an opening of our eyes so that we can see sin. That's where it begins. With an opening of the eyes. Many of us, and much of our culture, if not most of our culture, walks around completely disinterested in God. And therefore disinterested in their sin. They just don't have any interest. So you can go up and you can start trying to talk to them about repentance. And you can start talking to them about sin. And they'll start scrolling Facebook because they're not interested. Most of our society walks around disillusioned. Because they've been burned by someone in the church or they've seen the hypocrisy of someone who claims to be a Christian or who claims to be a deacon or who claims to be someone important at the church. and They've seen that hypocrisy so they're completely disillusioned with with who God is and with the gospel and with what it means to be a Christian so they never even see their sin. They don't open their eyes up long enough to see their sin. And maybe the biggest curse of all in our culture is that we walk around distracted. And I don't know that we have ever ever, ever in the history of mankind lived in a time where there are such distractions. 
We carry a distraction around with us in our hands all the time that's constantly buzzing with a text message, constantly buzzing with an email, constantly buzzing with a Facebook notification, constantly buzzing with an Instagram notification. We can't read a chapter of the Bible without looking at our phone two or three times. How on God's green earth are we ever going to hear from God? It may come to a day... Hopefully soon, where we just do like the Chinese church did when I was there. You walk in the door, you turn your cell phone off, you throw it into a box, they put it in a closet, shut the closet door, shut the door to that room, and then they have church. And they do it because they're afraid the police are going to find them. We should do it because we're afraid we're not going to hear from God. Just so distracted. So we go around and our eyes can't even see and we don't even know it. And this is step one. This is first level what it means to repent, we have to be able to see. In Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul, who was then the persecutor Saul, was on his way to Damascus. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. He knocks him down. He blinds him. And he says, get up in Acts 26, verses 16 and 18. Get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to... Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Open their eyes. Repentance is an opening of the eyes. Remember the prodigal son? He goes to his father, he gets his inheritance, he goes off, he squanders all of his inheritance, he winds up slopping hogs, which is the dream job of every Jewish boy, right? He's slopping hogs, he's feeding the pigs, he's so hungry, he could go eat with the pigs, and then the Bible says, he came to himself. His eyes were opened, he saw the slop, he saw the pigs, he saw the murk, he saw the mire, and he remembered his father. And he came to himself and he said, I think I'm going home. We're going to be looking at that in a few weeks in more detail. But that's the first little step, the first little ingredient in repentance is just having our eyes open to see the slop. To see the pigs, to see the swine. And to see the glory and the comforts and the grace and the mercy and the goodness of our God who waits with open arms. What's your eye for? What is your eye made for? It's for seeing, right? What else is your eye made for? What else does your eye do besides see? Weep? Weep? So we see our sin and we weep our sin. It leads to the second ingredient, sorrow. We have sight of sin and we have sorrow for sin. When we see our sin in light of the holiness and the goodness and the grace of our God, it produces sorrow. Now listen, we don't start with sin. When we're telling someone about Jesus, when we're sharing the gospel, you don't start with, well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. 
You don't start there. You start with God is absolutely holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is good. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is love. He is just. He is patient. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is thoroughly, totally righteous. His standard for us is perfection. His standard for us is holiness, blamelessness, sinlessness. His standard for us is holy. You see, we start with God and His perfect standard, and then we can see sin, not in light of Deacon Dan down there at the church, who was a hypocrite all of our lives, not in light of that church down the road that did us wrong, not in light of Hitler. I'm not as bad. You know how many times people say, I'm not as bad as Hitler's in hell, but nobody else is. Only Hitler. Not as bad as Hitler. Thank God for Hitler. Now I've got a standard. No, Hitler's not the standard. God is the standard. So we start with the holiness and the righteousness and the beauty of God. We see our sin in light of that, and that breeds sorrow. Sorrow for sin comes from offense of a holy God, not from consequences of our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret that leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces Death. Worldly sorrow is sorrow over the consequences of our sin. Worldly sorrow is the sorrow over the circumstances that our sin has gotten us in, while godly sorrow is sorrow sorrow for the offense of our sin. Do you know how many people we encounter who are sorry for their consequences of their sin, they're sorry for the situation their sin has gotten them in, the circumstances their sin has led them to, but they're not sorry for their sin against God, and therefore they will not repent, and they would rather live in the murk and the mire and the slop and the hogpen of their life, and it leads to death, than to sorrow in a godly way and turn to Him for forgiveness. Hypocrites and lost people grieve for the bitter consequence of sin, but true repentance is a sorrow for our Sin. We see our sin and we sorrow for our sin. Our eye sees, our eye weeps. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house for a fancy meal, and during that meal, it's interrupted by a woman in the city who is known as a sinner. And when she finds out that Jesus is at this Pharisee's house, she marches right into the Pharisee's house. She's gone and bought an alabaster vial of perfume. She stands behind Jesus at his feet, and she begins to wet his feet with her what? Tears. And the Pharisee's getting all worked up, because if Jesus knew what kind of nasty woman this was, what kind of sinful woman this was, what kind of reputation this woman had, if he was really a prophet, he would have stopped all this. But Jesus interrupts and said, The one who has been forgiven little, loves little, This woman's been forgiven much. That's why she loves much. She is weeping. 
on his feet. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It is good to be broken. It is good to be contrite. It is good to hurt over sin. We see our sin, we sorrow for our sin. Then thirdly, we confess our sin. Confession of sin is the third ingredient. Now naturally, if we see our sin, naturally if we feel sorry for our sin, we're going to confess that sin, we're going to acknowledge that sin, we're going to claim that sin. And there's two types of confession we need to think about this morning. One is a vertical confession. We confess to God specific, detailed, personal sin. We have the promise of 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That word confess there means to see our sin as He sees our sin, to think of our sin as He thinks of our sin, and to bring our sin to Him. Most of us don't do a good job of confessing. Here's the confession prayer I heard all the time growing up as a boy in church. It was when the guys came down the front, you know, during the offertory hymn. Some of you know about that. It was always the third or fourth song, first, second, fourth stanza. On that fourth stanza, they knew it was time to come out there during the course, you know, and walk down the aisle with their plate in their hand. They'd all line up right here in front of the pulpit, and one of them, either either decidedly before, or they all grunt and elbow and point until one of them would pray for the offering, and the prayer would always end like this, forgive us of our many sins, Amen. So confession in the church comes to mean, God, we've sinned, forgive us of our many sins, amen. Confession, confession to God needs to be specific. Confession to God needs to be personal. Confession to God needs to be, get down to business real. And I know that every prayer can't be that way. But I've tried to make it a pattern in my life over the last few years to spend at least one day during the year, doing a serious personal evaluation and seeking to at least see my sin and sorrow for my sin and confess my sin and many that I'm still battling. And one of the things, and we'll all battle sin to the day we die. You're never going to conquer them all. You get one, it's like whack-a-mole. You get one gone and another one pops his head up that you didn't see before, right? And one of the things that's helped me really think about sins that that aren't the ones that pop their heads up visibly that you know. Like if I called on you right now, you could could probably pinpoint two or three sins you battle. You might not want to do it publicly, but but you could. But there's other sins that are under the surface of that sin that give that sin power that we may not even think about or confess or deal with. This is a little book called Returning to Holiness by Gregory Frizzell. I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know anything else that he's written. But this little book has been a tool that God has used to help me see all of the truckloads of sin that I have in my life and how those sins tie together to feed other sins. So I'd encourage you, if you want to just like do a retreat, a two to three day I'm going to sit down with this book and I'm going to walk through the scriptures and I'm going to make notes of what I recognize in my life 
and just spend those two or three days saturating yourself in the Scriptures and in this book and letting God show you where you need to confess your sin, I think it'll give you some insights at the end of those two to three days with this book that you may not have known before. So I just throw that in there as a recommendation. He's not giving me any royalties for recommending his book. So it's vertical confession of sin. We should confess, yes, that we are sinners, but we should also recognize our individual specific sins and confess them at least periodically and regularly to God. So it's vertical confession of sin. There's also horizontal confession of sin. Now, we referenced Luther when he nailed those 95 theses to the door of that castle in Wittenberg in 1517 to spark the Protestant Reformation. One of the things we swung, swung the pendulum way over on was we realized that in Catholicism, people would go regularly to the priest to confess their sins. You ever wondered who that priest confesses his sins to? <clears throat> anyway, they go to the priest and they confess their sins to the priest. He checks off the boxes and says, hey, go give some money to Mary and everything's good or, or go clean up a street or whatever it is, some penance. Go do some penance and it's all good. So we, we think we got away from that. We don't want to confess our sins to any earthly priest. We just talk to God. But listen, the Bible says in James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There is vertical sin where we, vertical confession where we confess our sins to God specifically, purposefully, intentionally. But there's also a place for horizontal confession, not at the priest booth, but among people that you know, that you trust, that love you, that you love, that can hold you accountable, that can encourage you, and that can pray for you so that you may be healed and overcome the sin that you're battling. So when we think about repenting, we need to think about seeing our sin, sorrowing for our sin, confessing our sin to God, and then even confessing our sin to someone that we love and trust so that they can hold us accountable and pray for us and encourage us as we battle that sin. Now when we do, you think, well, I'm not, I would never. Mm. Well, that leads us to the fourth point, the shame for sin. You know, somebody once said, I don't mind confessing to God because God doesn't really spread what I've been doing. God doesn't spread what I struggle with. God doesn't speak out loud about what, I, what I've been doing. So we, we may not be as ashamed, unfortunately, before God as we would be before somebody else. The true repentance is not just seeing our sin and being sorrow, sorry internally and confessing our sin vertically, but it's confessing our sin horizontally and being downright ashamed of what we've done and what we do. When we see our sin and feel its offense and admit it to God and to our fellow believers, we should be ashamed. One of the things we saw when we were um, spending more time with Saudi Arabians, Yemeni people from that region of the world, they, they don't really have a concept of sin. Sin doesn't bother them as much as shame. So they hear the gospel, they understand the gospel, they may believe the gospel. And the hard part for them is not turning from sin necessarily. The hard part for them is telling their parents because they're going to bring shame on everybody and be disowned. Listen, whether we're part of an honor-shame culture or not, we should be ashamed and recognize 
that when we come face to face with our God and our sin, shame should be felt. The problem, the problem is not when shame is felt. We want to avoid that, but the problem is not when shame is felt. The bigger problem is when we, when we sin and it brings no shame. And let me tell you, we are entering into a time in our environment, in our culture, where people celebrate their sin. Brings no shame. It is a great shame, people. It is a great shame when professing Christians are not ashamed. It is a great shame when people are not ashamed. Jeremiah 6.15, God asked, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they've done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Since we speak of life choices, one of the things that we did more regular uh, when we were in Mississippi, we've gone a few times here, is go to the abortion clinics or the Planned Parenthood in the area and try to engage the ladies that are going in with the gospel, try to pray for the ladies that are going in. Just let us come over, let us pray with you, let us talk with you. And you get this picture that most of the ladies that go into these places are victims, they're upset, they're innocent. Oh, friend, that just proves you've never been there. They will go in and they'll have on shirts that say, I've already murdered six of my children. They'll gladly say, we know this is murder. We know that it's a baby. We know that we're, we're killing this child. And we don't care. It's my business. It's not your business. Only God can judge me. And that's when I ask, do you really think that's a good thing? Only God can judge me? I'd much rather you judge me than God judge me, right? We well, just got a distorted view and shame, shame should be present. And it's not present. And they're not ashamed when they commit abomination anymore. Be assured. If you're at that place where you've seen your sin and you've sorrowed for your sin. And you've confessed your sin to God. And maybe to others. And you feel shame. Let me just say, the more... You're ashamed of sin now? The less you'll be ashamed at Christ's coming. Wouldn't you much rather be ashamed of sin now than to be ashamed when Jesus returns? You know, in 1 John 2.28, this isn't in your notes, but I just thought I'd give this to you free of charge this morning. 1 John 2.28 says, Abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at His coming. Shame for sin. Number five, fifth ingredient. Sight for sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred, hatred of sin. Listen, when shame is felt for our sin, hatred comes next. Thomas Watson said, Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Think about that. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed or hated. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. Hatred of sin is a key indicator of true repentance and godly sorrow. And I'm not talking about their sin... I'm talking about your sin. You know how easy it is to be that person? That person who always sees the flaws in everybody else around you. 
That person who always sees the shortcomings of others, who always sees the sin of others, who, who is the self-appointed person to send the messages that correct you all the time on all that you're doing wrong and all that you should be doing better. That's a very easy place to be. In the words of John Flavel, it is easier to cry against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in yourself. We're not talking about hatred of everybody else's flaws and everybody else's sins. But looking in the mirror and hating your sin. Your sin. One of, the question, one of the three questions that we ask everybody that joins this church. Do you say that you love God? Somebody's getting a cheat sheet. I'm meeting with people after the church, after church service today about joining the church. Now they're getting some cheat, cheating inside information in my pop quiz questions. One of them is, would you say that you love God? Number two, would you say that you hate God? your sin I won't tell number three because I don't want to give them too many hints and part of part of being a Christian and giving evidence that you're a Christian is that you hate your sin despise your sin want to go to war with your sin then that leads to the sixth ingredient which is turning from sin you see all of this comes together in a grand turning from sin We've seen this sin, we've sorrowed over the sin, we've confessed our sin, we've been shamed by our sin, and we turn from that sin, not because we're afraid of going to hell, not because we're afraid of the consequences, not because we're afraid of the circumstances that that sin can get us into, but because we have seen it as God sees it, and we hate it. So I want to turn from it. Turning from sin is synonymous with dying to our sin. A continual dying to sin is the life of repentance. We need, to, we need to put our sin to death. Mortify the flesh, in the words of John Owen. Listen to what he said. Do not take a day off from this work. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin. Or it will be killing you. You can take that one to the bank. That's, that's almost as true and trustworthy as Scripture right there. Romans 8, 13, Paul said, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In the words of John Owen again, it is the constant duty of believers to render a death blow to the deeds of the flesh. Not boxing as one who's beating the air, not sparring, but a death blow to the deeds of the flesh that they may not have life and strength to bring forth their destructive influence. Turn from sin, put to death your sin. Now here, this is, this is a definition of repentance we see our sin we sorrow over our sin we confess our sin we are shamed by our sin we hate our sin we turn from our sin we go to war with it we try to put it to death now is the fruit of that type of repentance in your life the owner of the vineyard is searching your heart right now he's searching your life right now looking for this type of repentance for looking he's looking for this type of fruit 
The vine dresser is digging this morning. He's fertilizing this morning. He's giving you tender grace and tender mercy this morning to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Will you repent? Will you live a life that is characterized by repenting? But don't just repent. If you've been asleep, now's a good time to wake up. If I've lost you, now's a good time to come back home and listen. Will you repent? Will you live a life of repentance? Will you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? But don't just repent. Go even farther. When you feel the sting of sin, and maybe this morning you feel the sting of sin. When you feel the sting of sin, yes, repent. But look up to Jesus. You know what Judas did? Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 silver coins. Judas saw what happened to Jesus and he repented. He, he felt sorry for what he did. He returned the 30 silver coins. He returned them. And then he went out and in despair, he hung himself and went to hell. Has anybody felt such sorrow for their sin that they go give retribution and then go kill themselves over it? How much more sorry can you be? How much more ashamed can you be than to go out and hang yourself and yet Judas went to hell because he didn't finish. He didn't look up to Jesus. Just repenting, just wallowing in your sin will make you miserable forever. Yes, wallow in your sin, but look up from the wallow to Jesus. Repent, but do more than repent. Run to Jesus, where there's open arms and forgiveness and grace and mercy and a do-over button. His mercies are new every single morning. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel become impatient yet again with Moses and with God. And they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? We hate this food. We're going to starve to death. So what does God do? He, he does something very strange. He sends fiery serpents among the people. And these fiery serpents bit the people. And people started dying. Nothing will get your attention quicker than a bunch of fiery serpents. You think the squirrel went berserk in that church that Ray Stevens sung about in Spark Revival? You let a bunch of fiery servants, serpents get turned loose in here and start biting people and folks start dropping. dropping. We're going to ask, what's wrong? What do we need to do, Lord? And that's what they did. And, and then God did something even more strange. He tells Moses, I want you to make a brazen serpent, a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it up on a pole. Could you imagine how, how many people were knocking at Moses' door saying, hurry up, get that snake made. Get it on the pole. So that everybody who looks to the serpent will be healed. If anyone who's bitten looks upon it, he will live. And that's exactly what happened. It wasn't just repenting, oh Moses, God, we've messed up, we're sorry, what do we need to do? But it was a, we're sorry God, and now look, look up. And Jesus takes this story from Numbers 21 and He applies it in John 3, verses 14 through 17. And He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send 
the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Listen, repent this morning. Live a life of repentance this morning. Continual repentance this morning. But couple that with continual looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus for hope and for a future and for His mercy and for His grace and for eternal life. He's been lifted up. He was nailed to a cross and he died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures and was seen by many. He ascended into heaven and he's coming again one day. And how we will not be ashamed is by living a life of continual repentance and continual looking to the cross. Would you bow with me? Miss Lisa's going to come play softly. And as your heads are bowed, I want us to just go to the Lord in prayer and reflection for just a moment before we sing. And I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart, to search your life, to look and to see is the fruit of repentance present in your life? Have you seen your sin? Have you sorrowed over your sin? Not the consequences only, not the circumstances only, but the offense of your sin. Have you sorrowed over your sin? Have you confessed your sin to God? Have you put it on Him? Have you given it to Him? Have you been shamed and ashamed of your sin? Have you, have you truly hated your sin? Gone to war with your sin? sin turn from your sin mortify the flesh are you battling that sin trying to give it a death blow every day is that you would God see that fruit in your life right now that's a trait of a Christian friend and if that's there then then you can have some confidence this morning the devil doesn't want you to feel sorry for your sin he doesn't want you to be ashamed of your sin he doesn't want you to repent of your sin it's not the devil, it's God. If you don't see that fruit, right now, this morning, pray, pray where you are and ask God to give you, to grant you real biblical repentance and do a work in your heart. Pray right now and ask Him to do that. He will. Maybe you're that person who has been wallowing in your sin and your shame day after day, week after week, month after month, and you just can't seem to get out of the sorrow and the shame and the despair of your sin. Listen, you know what you need to do? You need to look to Jesus. Jesus has promised to forgive you, to cleanse you, to wash you. There's nothing you've done, there's nothing you have done that is so bad that Jesus can't forgive you and cleanse you, and wash you, and give you a brand new start, and make you a brand new creation. It won't change what's happened in the past. It may not change all the consequences of what's happened in the past, but Jesus can change you. And He can remove your shame, and He can remove your guilt, 
And He can give you a clear conscience with Him. Not because of you, but because of Him. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done for you. Will you look to Christ this morning? Look to Him afresh. And that, that, my friend, is what it means to be a Christian. Daily, regular, constant repentance and a continual looking up to Jesus as our only hope and our only grounds for salvation. Father, we thank you for your call to repentance, the warnings around repentance, and we thank you that in the midst of those warnings, we have hope because of Christ and that he's been lifted up and that we can look to him this morning and have confidence that we've been forgiven, that our slate has been cleansed, that it's been nailed to the cross, that it's been judged in Jesus on the cross, that it's been buried in that borrowed tomb, and that we have a future and a hope because of what you've done for us on that cross. God, I pray for repentance to be birthed in our hearts. I pray for faith and forgiveness to be claimed and accepted in hearts. And I pray that you would stir us in a way we haven't been stirred for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.